How's it going, guys? Why don't we uh, open our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 6, is where we're going to be at today. I'll tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing. Um, if you guys have been with us for any length of three weeks, you know that we started a brand new series uh, looking at the person of the Holy Spirit. If you guys don't have Bibles, by the way, you can raise your hand. We'll get you a Bible. If you guys don't have or own a Bible, uh, please feel free to keep this. It's our gift to you guys. So we started a brand new series uh, looking at the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, typically what we do here as a church community, we study God's Word. We just go book by book and verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Every once in a while we'll pause and we'll look at themes and ideas and concepts or topics throughout this really big book we call the Bible. And we started that, a brand new one, about three weeks ago, like I mentioned, looking at the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. But today we're going to kind of pause from looking at the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to actually look at the subject of baptism. And I'll tell you why. So we'll have a slide that'll pop up there and show you a little bit about this. So typically what we do as a church, we, we have lots of different smaller baptisms throughout the year, but we usually have one large baptism throughout the year. If we had a church uh, facility that allowed us to be able to have a big water thing up here, um, I would love, personally, I would love to do baptism every single service. Just basically end the service by saying, who wants to get dunked right now? Who wants to follow Jesus? Come on forward. We're going to baptize you. Um, but because we don't have that, we have to be a little bit more strategic. And uh, so typically what we'll do is once a year we do this really large, big baptism at the beach. Um, and that will be two weeks from now. So we have all three of our services basically combined into one uh, large service at the beach. We meet just kind of the north side of the pier in Avila underneath the little freeway or, or road overpass. And uh, we just go outside and we listen to people's testimony of what God has done in their life. And uh, in years past, I think last year, there's about 50 people that share their testimony. And we got to hear these amazing stories of God's grace. We got to baptize them. And it was, it was just an amazing... I, I always walk away from those. And I'm like, we could have done 50 more. Like, I could have sat there for another three hours listening to this. It, I'd be like a lobster, but that's okay. I don't, I don't care. This is so good just hearing the stories of people's transformed lives and then watching them get baptized. We basically overtake the beach, and it's amazing. There's hundreds and hundreds of people out there. It's just really an awesome time. If you have never been to that, um, definitely highly uh, recommend you making a point to come out to this and just bring the whole family, bring an umbrella if you need, sunscreen, everything else that you need to be able to be part of that. And uh, it's just really an amazing time. So that's coming up May 17th uh, at 11 o'clock at Avila Beach. Um, so what we're going to look at today specifically is the subject of baptism. I actually try to do this every year to take some time coming up to the baptism to really talk a little bit about what baptism is, to help you understand a little bit what, about what baptism is. And I basically have three goals. One goal is if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're considering the claims of Christianity and trying to understand who Jesus is and trying to make sense of this thing that is called Christianity, my hope is that you will understand not just simply the symbolism, but really more so understand the actual um, the stuff that Christianity is made of, like actually what it is, and that my hope would be that faith would rise in your heart and you would trust Jesus and do all the stuff that we typically describe as get saved, know Jesus, get born again, however you want to describe it. My hope is that you would come to faith in Christ today and come to know eternal life. Secondly, is that if you're a group of people here and you call yourself a Christian, but you've never been baptized, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, no matter where you're at kind of in your Christian journey, if you would call yourself or associate yourself as a follower of Jesus, but for whatever reason you've never been baptized, my hope today would be to convince you to actually get baptized. It was really cool to share 
there was a guy that came up to me after first service, and um, I don't know, my, if I had to guess, maybe mid to late 60s. Um, and he was like, I've been a Christian for a really long time. I've never been baptized. I'm going to get baptized now. I'm like, that's awesome. Like, what, what made you do that? I mean, think about doing that. He's like, I've just been in rebellion. I've been not wanting to do it. It's just because it seems worthless and senseless, and I've just never done it. And now I'm going to get baptized. I'm like, that's awesome. And so it's so encouraging. And that's what I want. That's what I hope, is that if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, you've never been baptized, I hope to convince you. And then finally, if you are a Christian, if you've been baptized, um, I hope to do more than just simply give you a nice little 45-minute nap time. What I would hope to have happen today, right now, would be that in reliving, thinking through, reimagining what baptism is all about, more so the idea of what the Christian faith is all about, that it would reignite fires in your heart, in your soul, in, to reignite passion for God. That you would relive, re-understand what it is and why baptism was such an important thing as to what Jesus did in your life. So my hope would be that it would stir up a deeper, fervent passion, love in your heart for God. So that's really where I'm going. Um, I want to begin this morning by basically reading out of the book of Romans. Uh, we'll take a look at a common passage that is sort of talking about baptism, but it's far more than just simply talking about baptism. Um, but we'll see there's basically at least three things I think that Paul is describing what baptism is. So baptism is an action that basically speaks of at least three specific things, which we'll try to unpack in this passage. But I want to just read the story or read what Paul has to say about this in Romans chapter 6, verses uh, like 1 to uh, 14. I'm going to be reading out of uh, the New Living Translation, which is a little bit different than what I typically read out of. Uh, but if you don't have that translation, then you can either just listen or you can follow along, which will be what is up there on the screen. So Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Uh, just follow along, listen, or pay attention. It says this, Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you not forgotten that when we were joined with Christ... Jesus in baptism, we were joined with him in his death. We died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and we just and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Verse 5, he says, Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. We're kind of saying about that, and more so specifically slaves. We're no longer slaves to fear. You can also add to that. We're no longer slaves to sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're hearing this, and you're like, I associate with that. That's who I am. I am I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Christ. Whatever type of terminology you would describe your experience with God, um, what, what is true of you is that you are no longer a slave to fear. It doesn't mean that there are not moments that fear might come and taunt you or terrorize you, right? If you've ever been through any type of traumatic experiences or challenging circumstances in your life, you, you are absolutely aware of this. You, you know what it feels like to be living your life, walking down through the path of life, and all of a sudden some traumatic experience happens and 
you kind of get some sort of diagnosis that's a little bit frightening or something happens to a child of yours, and it's very easy to be overwhelmed by some sense of immediate fear. But there's a vast distinction between being a slave to fear and just periodically being terrorized by fear. You guys following along? What Paul is saying is that those that are in Christ, you're, you're not a slave to sin. You're not a slave to these things that are destructive. They may periodically uh, interfere or interrupt your life, the regular programming of your life, but they don't master you. They're, they don't have ultimate control over you. That's insanely good news. Paul goes on to say, he says in verse 5, Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised with him to life. As uh, we know that our old selves, our old sinful selves, were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in ourselves. We are no longer slaves to sin. Verse 7, he says, For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ raised from the dead. And we will also, uh, and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives to the glory of God. Verse 11, he says, So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ. So in other words, this kind of taps into a very large theological concept that Paul carries throughout most of his writing. It's this concept of being in Christ. If you've ever read anything from the Apostle Paul, you know that Paul uses this phrase quite frequently. It's the idea that those that are the followers of Messiah are actually so closely, in other words, God so closely links himself with his followers. It's as if you are in him, in Christ, in God. It's this unbelievably close relational uh, connection that God has with his followers so that whatever happens to the Messiah happens to his followers. You guys following along? So if Jesus suffered, you will suffer. Hallelujah? No, that's not something to be excited about. But the good news is, is that if you suffer, the good news is that suffering does not have the ultimate end. Because as Jesus suffered, his suffering was ultimately unto death. Your suffering may or may not be unto death, at least not the same type of death that Jesus suffered. The good news is, as Jesus suffered, so you will suffer. As Jesus died, so you will die. As Jesus rose, so you will rise. That's the really good news, that God so closely associates himself, links himself to his followers, to his children, to his saved ones, that everything that happened to Christ also will be shared with his subjects, with his followers. That's really good news. That's what Paul is saying. So if Christ died, you will die. But if Christ rose, you will rise. This is the good news that he's describing and packing for those that follow. Verse 12, he says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give into its sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you are dead, but now you, are, now you have new life. So use your body as an instrument to do what is right to the glory of God. Another word for that could be to give your body. Think of your body as an instrument. If you're a follower of God, think of your body as an instrument that now can be used for what Paul says right or rightness or righteousness is another way to think of it. 
So the idea of what a Christian is, is a Christian is not somebody that just simply stops doing bad stuff. It's far more than that. In fact, sometimes some churches have a tendency, or pastors or preachers have a tendency to focus on all the bad stuff that you are to stop doing. The problem with that is, is that that's really not Christianity. That's just simply moralism. You can actually be a Buddhist and stop doing bad stuff. Stop eating food that is non-vegetarian. Stop doing things that are harmful and destructive to the community and to the world around you. But that does not necessarily associate you as a follower of Yeshua or Jesus. It's far more than that. It's not less than that. It's far more than that. Because with salvation, what Paul is describing and unpacking here, following God, living resurrected life, this baptismal identity is not just simply stopping doing stuff that's bad, sin, or using your body as an instrument toward unrighteousness, but therefore going further on into and up into using your body as an instrument for righteousness. In other words, putting the world to right. What are things in your life right now that are not right? What are things in your life right now that are like a bone that's out of joint? What are circumstances, relationships, in your life right now that you literally have a front row seat in front of you and you feel the pain, you feel the anguish, you feel the angst and the hardship and the pressure and the oppression. You see it. Maybe God's given you a unique heart for some of those things. What are the, those things that you sit in front of that window and you watch, you feel, you feel the compassion, you feel the, the trauma over that? Those are things that God calls his followers to now become Instruments of righteousness, using your body to set that which is out of joint to right. Those things that are broken, those things that are unlovely, what are those things that we're called to love? Those things that are uh, filled with and riddled with injustice, we're called to bring justice and righteousness and rightness into those things. Where there is stealing or sinfulness or brokenness, all forms of things, we're called into that. It's really what Paul's saying, use your body as an instrument of righteousness. And finally, he finishes with this statement. He says, sin no longer is your master. You live under the freedom of God's grace. Fundamentally, what Paul is saying is that for a Christian, what a Christian is, is not God making bad people good. Again, that's moralism. It's God actually doing something far more intricate in some ways, even more complicated, it's God actually taking dead people, making them alive, taking people that are soiled and defiled and making them clean, God taking people that are alienated and ostracized and marginalized and making them sons. So that's what we'll be taking a look at. So if I think about the idea of baptism, Paul says that all of this is like linked together into this one act called baptism. That's why Paul would say, Remember, this is what happened when you were baptized into Christ and you were baptized into his death and you were baptized into his life. In other words, Paul links all of this big, beautiful picture that Paul describes that God has done for you into this action or this thing that we call baptism. So, with that being said, I think of baptism like this. Baptism really is this declaration by way of this action, going into the water, coming out of the water, uh, declaring that God has acted on behalf of you. Baptism is not so much about you doing something. It's really more so it's about this declaration that God has done something for you. That's what baptism is. It's really you basically taking the step forth saying, God has done something on behalf of me that I was incapable or powerless, able to do. God has done something. God has acted on my 
behalf. And it's good. It's life-giving. It's life-transforming. And this is what Paul is describing. So as I read this passage, there's at least three things that kind of come to the surface that I think about and see about that Paul's unpacking in terms of this idea of what baptism is. So in my mind, I typically think in graphics and pictures and images and whatnot. And the image that kind of came to my mind as I was reading this was this diamond sitting on this black velvet with a black background kind of spinning, but light shining on it. And I just imagine from every new angle that this thing's spinning, you see something more beautiful. It's just one diamond, but it's got a multiplicity of beauty that kind of flows or emanates, uh, comes out of it. And I think that's what Paul is describing that baptism is all about. So the three things that we'll take a look at, really that baptism is this declaration of, it's this declaration that God has acted upon you in at least three different ways. Next slide. Is that God has acted upon you First of all, by way of washing you, God has acted upon you by way of raising you to life, and finally God has acted upon you by way of placing you within his family. So these three things we'll just quickly uh, look at and then move forth. So one, we'll take a look at, first of all, the baptism was taught in the scripture. We'll try to understand that and pack that. And finally, we'll finish with the fact that baptism was actually uh, practiced. It was something that Christians did. The reason why I really want to emphasize this is because, number one, the practice, the action of baptism is actually rooted in the historical Christian teaching. The corpus of scripture, the New Testament specifically, tells us that Christians got baptized. People, followers of Jesus, got baptized. The second thing is we also notice that they actually did it. And this is really important. I want to emphasize this and kind of underscore this a little bit. Because we live in a world, a lot of ways, in which uh, Christianity is sort of this edited form or version, which we typically, especially a lot of times, younger Christians, they have the tendency to look at anything that is remotely sanctimonious or sacred or ordinance bound and think, oh, that's, that's, that's that old traditional stuff. We don't need that. And baptism may reek, at least in some people's minds or nostrils, as that being old sanctimonial type of sacramental ordinance type stuff that we don't really need to do. We just follow Jesus. We don't need to get baptized. We don't need to partake of communion because that's, that's all ceremonial stuff that we just follow Jesus and we just follow Jesus the way that we want. What I would suggest to you that if you would call yourself someone that actually listens to and abides by the scripture, um, then, then this will have to confront you. And secondly, if you would be one that claims to be one that follows within the actual practice of followers of Jesus, then this will also confront you. That you, you cannot get away from the fact that people that believe the Bible have to wrestle with the fact that it's taught in Scripture. And secondly, if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus' followers were baptized. So if you're someone that follows Jesus, for whatever reason, you've never been baptized. Like I said, I, I absolutely hope to convince you to wrestle with, to push against some of the mentality that fights against, that resists following God, especially into chilly waters off the coast of California to get baptized. For Jesus' name. All right, so let's take a look at this real quickly. First of all, what we see is that God has washed us. It's the first thing we identify that Paul describes, that you were washed. He describes that, but then also in other places, Titus chapter 3, verse 1, he says this. He saved us, not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. Um, each one of these things that we describe, that he washes us or raises us or places us in a family, all of them imply sort of a dark side. And the dark side in this particular one is that the fact is that we are by nature soiled, we're filthy. Our lives are not what they should be. 
So if you think of it this way, every single one of us are mastered by something. We use the language that Paul uses again. We are mastered by something. There's something that masters us. Some driving desire, passion, or longing, or motor, or engine, however you want to describe that, inside of us compels us, moves us, motivates us. So if someone says, I don't follow God, the question has to be asked, and what do you follow? Oftentimes someone might say, well, I just follow the advice of this world. That's, okay, that's, that's nice. Um, some might say, I follow the stars. I'm in astrology. Or I follow my conscience. At the end of the day, we all follow something. Something drives us. Something guides us. But let's say, for example, if you are super uber rogue type modern person that says, I don't follow anybody's advice. I follow myself. The question is, how's it work out for you? Like, how is that actually leading you? Is, are, how is that work in terms of when you fail? When you fail even your own ideals, when you don't live up to your own standards and you find yourself broken or defiled, you feel yourself filthy inside. How do you cleanse that which is underneath the surface that really, for the most part, leaves you feeling dirty? See, what the hope of the gospel is, that the gospel actually says we are all filthy. The Bible describes that really our actions and the things that we do uh, no matter what governs or leads or guides us, at the end of the day, whatever it is, it, it's not leading us towards God. It's not leading us towards life. And therefore, by leading us away from God, it leads us to these places in our life that oftentimes leave us feeling soiled and broken, dirty and defiled. And yet, what Jesus describes, this whole idea of what he comes to announce is he comes to actually bring us cleansing, purging, washing. I mean, if you think about your life this is one of the reasons why one of the most common things is oftentimes happens after somebody sleeps with a prostitute or has a one-night stand, a male or a female, is they want to get into a shower and wash and scrub and lather up with soap. But the soap and the scrubbing and the washing never can go deep enough. It's because you've defiled something that is unwashable, unreachable. And this is what the gospel announces, is that God comes and says, I will wash and cleanse the defilement. Cleanse your guilty conscience. You realize how freeing that is? You realize how oftentimes we spend, we exert energy to simply cover, to protect. And when our heart and our mind does feel defiled, we just simply look for cheap entertainment to put our mind on, just to steered away from the weightiness, the oppression of defilement, and yet all that we look for is promised to us in Christ, that the Holy Spirit washes us. Baptism is sort of this symbol, this picture, that these waters don't just simply wash the crud off of our bodies. It also cleanses the stains on our soul. Second thing, we're told that Paul even describes it's the idea that we are raised, and Paul talks a lot about this in this passage that we read, that we are actually raised to life. And we touched on this a little bit. And the idea is that we were actually dead in our trespasses and our sins. And the, in the, the image of humanity uh, in this world, the default mode of our hearts, is not one whereby we are warmed and open and longing and interested in any ways towards God. In fact, we would prefer to not live in a world in which God governs our hearts. That's offensive to the natural heart. 
We don't want that. We run from that. And so typically what we do is if we think of God as being the stream of life, this living water, um, to simply say, I don't want that stream of water. I'm going to go find another stream. Actually doesn't lead you into greater effective streams that bring greater life. It actually leads you to places of, of death and brokenness and, and loneliness and destruction. Some might even say or challenge or push back and be able to look, I've walked away from God and my life is fairly satisfying. But here's what I would suggest. Everything apart from God has an expiration date. Think of it as a laptop that has a battery. I mean, you can unplug depending upon what type of laptop you have. If you have like an old school Windows laptop, maybe you'll get about 45 minutes battery life. But if you've got the decent, better, more upgraded version of like an Apple, you might get eight hours of battery life out of that. But at the end of the day, it will die. You unplug it from a source and it will die. Some last longer, some last less long. But the reality is at some point, death is inevitable. And this is exactly what the Bible describes, that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And yet God comes to us and raises us to life. Again, baptism is this depiction, not of us doing something for God. It's, It's the declaration that God has actually done something for us. We were the dead people in the grave. We were like Lazarus in which God comes over us through the voice of Jesus and speaks Lazarus' name and says, Arise. That's what God's done for you. He spoke to your condition, your life, and spoke your name and you arose. This is, this is insanely good news, too, because at the end of the day, we were powerless to raise ourselves, and yet God, through Jesus, raised us. Baptism. Here's the good thing about baptism. On a practical note, when we baptize you, we put you under the water, but the really good news is that we don't leave you there. <laughs> it's not called a drowning. It's called a baptism. So we bring you back out of the water because the symbolism would not be accurate or complete if we left you there. Plus, it would look really bad as a PR thing for the church. But the point of the matter is that we recognize that what baptism is about. It's not just simply going into the water and death. It's also coming out of the water life. Jesus went into the grave, death. Jesus came out of the grave, life. Remember, Paul's whole idea is that those who belong to Messiah, the king, are so closely linked to this king. Now, think about this in any other type of monarchy or kingdom. You may just simply be a subject but you'll never get to hang out and have dinner or be invited to the table. I mean, I was just reading the headlines yesterday. There's a brand-new princess that gets brought home in England. You know, how awesome is that? You know, like your life, literally, it's like you are a princess. You know, there's all these, like, wannabes, you know, like in a good sense. I've got two daughters, and they were wannabes, you know, like in a good way. Like, I really want to be a princess. But this is a legit princess. None, I mean, we can read the headlines, and we can, like, ooh and ah of the fact and dream big dreams, like, wow, princess, that's awesome. But the fact of the matter is we will probably never, ever get to sit down and have tea with a king or a queen because even though they may be a remote ruler, there is no intimacy involved in this. And what we have with God is this God that says, arise, come near. We have a God that just calls us from the grave and then gives us life and then calls us to come near to be with him. And so that this king, this king, this Christ king, so closely associates with his subjects, not just calling them by name, but calling them to come near. And we'll see how intimate this king gets finally in the next one. So we see that God ultimately 
places us in a family. And again, the implication is this, is that by virtue of our life, pulling away from God, trying to emancipate ourselves from God, trying to remove ourselves from the source of life itself, God, we have actually, what's happened is we've become alienated from life itself. We become orphaned. And this is the image, this is the picture of humanity. And I was thinking about this a lot over the past several months. I've, I, I love reading articles and listening to audiobooks. And one of the audiobooks I was recently listening to, or TED Talk I was listening to, associated with uh, uh, an audiobook that I was also listening to, was this idea that we live in a culture that more so than ever in the history of humanity, we are more connected than we've ever been. Like, in other words, you could know exactly what I did last night, or to some degree, what I did last night, at least the edited version of what I did last night, just by simply following me on my Instagram account. You don't know everything that I did, but the parts that I want you to know that I did. So, in other words, we are completely more connected than we've ever been in the history of mankind, but here's the strange sociological reality, that we are more alienated and lonely than we've ever been. How's that possible? Because you would think, on the one hand, if we know more about what's going on in people's lives and they know more about what's going on in our lives than ever at any other point in time in history, why would we feel so alone? But the fact of the matter is that's the world that we live in. And it just simply underscores the fact that we are all orphans in this big, lonely, hostile universe, and yet we're lost. We don't know where we belong. We don't really know who really truly loves us. We're not certain really who are our friends. And sometimes that uncertainty carries its way even into the marriage where we're not even really certain if we can trust the one we sleep with. We're alone. And yet what the hope of the gospel does is it comes to us and says no matter how lonely you are, no matter how alienated you are, no matter how much self-inflicted hell you have unleashed upon your own life or through your life and the lives of other people. No matter how far or marginalized you become in this life, no matter how orphaned you become from reality itself, or no matter how lost you feel, we have a God that says, come near. Be my son. Be my daughter. See, here's the thing. Sin Bible describes feels really good and really pleasurable for a season. But the thing with sin that is, like in the fine print, no one ever thinks about sin in this way. But what sin does, not only does it alienate you, but also dehumanizes you. Sin can be described or likened to like this cancer. It's this cancer that's, that's throughout our body and that we basically give this cancer away to other people. And so something has to be done with this cancer. See, here's the interesting thing about cancer, is that cancer can only live off of a, survive off of a living host for a period of time. And at some point, cancer ends up destroying itself by killing its own host. And once the host is dead, cancer dies. And what we have is this world of alienation based upon our own sin, of our own rebellion, of trying to run away from God, and yet we find ourselves alienated, lost in this world. And we have a God that says... Come there, I will take care of everything in your life that is alienated, defiled, broken, crushed you, killed you, separated you. And what baptism is, is this celebration, this recognition that, yes, God has done this to me. Yes, God has washed away my filth. 
God has raised me who was once dead to life. God has taken me that was once alienated and orphaned due to my own sin, my own rebellion, and that God has actually brought me near to a family. This is really what we're talking about when it comes to baptism. This is what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 6, that we've been given sort of this idea of a baptismal identity, a brand new life, a brand new hope. And yet baptism, I think of it this way, is two things. One, it's both the beginning. It's a place to begin. It's a place to start. It's a place to recognize that all things uh, can became, become and be made new. Uh, that you don't have to carry on in the same death and broken cycles that God can actually make things new. But it's also a state of being. It's a state of being. That's kind of what it is when we talk about it. You're in a state of being washed. You're in a state of being raised. You're in a state of being placed into God's kingdom. I think Jesus would say this to uh, the people that follow him. And Jesus speaks. And one of the more popular sermons that Jesus spoke is called the Sermon on the Mountain. Uh, it's kind of this, uh, this sermon that's describing what it means to live following a different king. Like I mentioned, all of us have a master, something that drives us, that feeds us, that we listen to their sermons all the time. And there's prophets to every one of these things that speak on their behalf. Every one of us is this regular, ongoing script that we're listening to or feeding on. Some of those scripts that you listen to, some of those sermons that you listen to that are coming from these false deities, these false lowercase g gods, may feel invigorating, may feel empowering, but at some point their end is death. And yet what Jesus does, he comes and he announces that he is king. He's a different kind of king. He's not a king after the order of Caesar or Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh or even after yourself. He's a king that's good. He's a king that loves. He's a king that actually bears our judgment rather than brings our judgment. He's a king that would rather bleed for us rather than shed our blood. That's the king that he is. He comes and he gives life. And what Jesus does in his sermon, basically what Jesus would say to those that are being in this state or have been born of the spirit and water, what it looks like to be in this new family is it looks like not submitting to the anxieties of what will I eat, what will I drink, for goodness sakes, what should I put on because I need to look really good. And think about the question underneath the assumption, why do we always feel like we need to look good? Because we feel like we got to impress somebody. Because we feel like we don't measure up somehow. We feel like somehow we are always on this perennial state of being on the outside. And by somehow dressing ourselves up nicely, then we'll get on the inside. And Jesus says, living according to that rule will lead to nothing but regular anxiety. It will crush you. Living for this new kingdom says, we're free. We don't need to worry about what we look like because we're accepted. We're washed. We're cleansed. We don't need to worry about what we're going to eat because if God loves and cares for birds that have a really, really small brain and yet God loves enough to care for them, to feed them, how much more will he lovingly care and take care of those that bear his image? Jesus would go on to say, and I think say things like this, uh, what it looks like to be part of this baptismal community is that it looks like loving your enemy. Not just simply loving God, it's assumed, but also lo- not only loving your neighbor. That's, again, one of those things that we tend to focus on. Like, it's easy, in a sense, to have a, some degree of understanding who God is and love God and 
love our neighbor. But then this, the rings circle out even further beyond that to saying love of enemy. And, and how do we do that? How do we love an enemy? It just, this is really the heart of what Jesus would say. It also looks like treating others uh, with dignity and respect just simply because they bear the image of God. So again, like I mentioned earlier, following Jesus, this new family, is not just simply stopping sin or sin stoppage. It's also moving into a whole new life that says we're called to bring the life of God out there. We're called to communicate, to live for, to enact. It looks like giving cups of cold water to our neighbor or our enemy or people that are in need, people that are marginalized, people that are in society, people that are castaways or throwouts in culture and society simply because they bear the image of God. We've had amazing people in this church that regularly see and feel that passion, that longing. They just have a unique gifting to do that. And I love that about our church community, that there are people that are just doing this on a regular basis. People that, for the most part, society or the downtown business commission in San Luis would be like, we're tired of these people. There's people in this church that are like, I, I love these people. Yes, they're tiring, but I'm never tired of them because they bear the image of God. This is amazing. This is, this is like what the baptismal community of Jesus' followers look like. It looks like really ultimately and finally breaking bread and drinking wine and celebrating this meal. But here's the crazy thing. The people that come to this party and celebrate this meal and break this bread and drink this wine are all the wrong people. Because in the world's society, in the world's order, in the world's culture, the parties that get thrown are only for the right kinds of people. In other words, if you are rich, filthy, filthy rich, you would never consider inviting somebody that smells. At least it doesn't smell like expensive cologne. You would never consider inviting somebody that is not like you or that is impoverished because what we see within the kingdom of God are all people that are invited to this table. All, no matter who you are. So we see not only businessmen, but we also see bums invited. We see not only the rich and famous, but also their gardeners are invited to come to this table. We see people that are not only powerful, but we also see the powerless that are invited to come. We see not only people that are graduates from Harvard, but also the hooker, that are invited to come to this table. It's at this table that we call the Lord's Supper, that we break the bread, we drink the cup, because it's there that we remind ourselves that Jesus did something for us that we could never do. And again, going back to the original thing that I described at the beginning, baptism is not so much about what you do, it's about what God has done on behalf of you or for you. He's brought you into this family. You don't deserve it, but you're there. This is Paul's way of describing this. We'd say that the gospel is not for the elites. The good news is that God has spoken to both Jew, who was given the word of God, who had the prophets, who had Father Abraham, and the Gentiles that were outcasts, that were castaways, that were people that would be easily forgotten, people that might even in some contexts be viewed as nothing more than kindling for fire in God's hells. But the point is, is that all are invited to come to this table partake because God has acted upon them. And this is really good news. This is good news for all of us because what this means is that we don't have to live according to the broken, defiled, death-causing systems that are the default mode of our hearts. You can be free. Those anxieties that define your life right now, the 
filth, the defilement, the sin that you've done in the past, all that you've looked at and you've felt ashamed of and you've tried to do everything you can to hide yourself from that past or do as everything you can to remain shallow with every other relationship that you have, you, you can be free from that. Do you realize how exhausting it is to live in duplicity? To live a double life? How freeing it is to simply bring it all to that table and say and know that you are washed, accepted, cleansed because Jesus did something on your behalf. Jesus bore our wrath, our judgment, our sin, our disappointment. Jesus bore it all for us. In other words, God's salvation is not cheap in any stretch, but it is free and all invited. So baptism really is this sign that causes us to recognize and remember that we're part of those people. That's our family. We're brought into that family. The final thing to finish up with is not only do we see that baptism was taught, but wrap this up with the idea that baptism was actually practiced. And I'll go through this real quickly. We see, first of all, Jesus was baptized. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus, remember that Jesus himself got baptized. Secondly, we see that Jesus actually instructs his disciples, go tell others to get baptized. We see, thirdly, that Jesus' people got baptized. People that said, I'm going to follow Jesus, they got baptized. And then finally, Jesus' people actually encouraged others to go out and get baptized. So here's what I'd suggest. If you claim to follow Jesus and you've never been baptized, I'd just simply ask you to think about why. Why have you not been baptized? What would hinder you? What has hindered you? What's caused you to not? Some would say, well, gosh, I've been a Christian for a long time, and now it'd be kind of awkward because I got saved you know, 15 years ago, and it looks kind of weird for me to go back and admit the fact that I've done something wrong. But if, if you are stuck in that, you haven't, you haven't quite understood the gospel yet. It has not yet pressed through because you're still living according to the old system that says, I am accepted by my good little Christian duties. In this case, it's baptism. And you're afraid that if I confess that I've never been baptized, I might not be accepted. You, you, missed, you missed the gospel. You are already accepted because Christ has already accepted you. Be baptized. No matter what type of background, no matter what types of circumstances you find yourself in, be baptized. This is the picture. So we are invited into this. So finally, I would just encourage you, if you are a Christian, you've already been baptized, three things I would encourage you in closing to consider, think about. One, um, enter in a celebration of watching others get baptized. So in other words, when we have a baptism, come on out. Just participate. Be a part of it. Watch. Invite neighbors. There's, to be honest with you, there's nothing more exciting about being able to go to the baptism and just watch people and hear their stories and watch them actually get baptized. It's absolutely amazing. Invite friends, people that you know. This is one of the great ways, in fact, if you have people that don't know anything about Christianity or they are nothing but pure, 100%, through and through cynics, this is such a great way to introduce them to what the Christian life is all about. Because they'll have a chance to listen to stories of alienation being made sons and daughters. They'll have an opportunity to listen to those that have felt the defiling effects of sin and the deadening effects of rebellion. And they'll be able to hear the stories of those that have been made alive. And they'll have a chance to see people, normal people, that are taking a step into icy, cold water as an act of saying, I'm one of those Jesus people. I belong to his family. I belong to this family of baptized ones. I live according to that. So, first of all, invite people. Think about it. Come on out to that. Invite others that maybe 
follow Jesus that you know maybe have never been baptized, encourage them. God has given every single one of you guys, if you're a follower of Jesus, a platform of people that may not ever come into church. You have an opportunity to speak into their life. Ask them, have you ever been baptized? No, I've never been baptized. You should get baptized once you're having a baptism. And finally, uh, think about it this way. This is an amazing time to remember and renew sort of your baptismal identity. In other words, if you are someone that has been baptized, you're a follower of Jesus, what does that really mean? What does that mean to you? What does that mean to you in the community of other people that bear this baptismal identity? That means that we are a community that loves one another. We bear one of those burdens. There's a couple other things that happen part of this community as well. We let each other down. We will sin against each other. But see, here's the thing. We are also committed to each other, which means that when you are sinned against, rather than bailing and divorcing the way is common within the world, you stick around long enough to watch the healing effects of forgiveness and reconciliation to take root because that is the story of the gospel that we find ourselves in. That's the story of the gospel that God invites you to be a part of says to people all the time, we, Calvary Slow, will fail you. We will let you down. We will offend you from time to time. I will say things. I guarantee I will do this. If I've not already done so today, that will offend you, and you will find offensive. But the beauty of the gospel is that we learn to say those words, I'm sorry, and we say, I forgive you, and we watch how the gospel begins to bring repair and healing in those broken areas. And that's the story that Jesus invites us into. We are all broken, defiled, dead, lost, alienated people that are deeply wounded. And yet Jesus speaks our name and says, rise. Jesus speaks to us and says, you are dirty and filthy and defiled. Be made clean. You who are lost, be found. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is why it's good. So we're going to respond. We're going to sing. We'll partake of the communion. We have it in the back. It's a way of reminding ourselves of little three areas. The family that we find ourselves in, the family that we belong to, the family of love, the family that has been given to us by God acting upon us, upon our behalf, birthing us, bringing us to life in him, into a family. That will offend us. That means that's why when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, it, by the way, when, you, when I say drink, I'm not literally saying, don't, so don't pick up the cup and do this. Please don't ever do that. We have bouncers that will chuck you out of here faster than you can. I'm just kidding. We don't have that. Um, but just take the bread and just dip it in there. It's a way of just, um, so no one spreads germs around. Um, and it's a way of reminding yourself you're part of this family. That bread that you're eating was once whole, but it's broken so that we can all eat. That's, that's the story of the gospel. We have a God that was once whole, but he comes into this world. The living word was made flesh so that flesh could be remade by the living word. That's what we celebrate. That's what I invite you into. So why don't we all stand? Let's respond. Partake of communion. Let's sing. Let's worship. If you're here this morning and there's anything that's going on in your life, you just feel like you need someone to minister to you, to pray for you. You feel like you've got these heavy burdens that you're carrying. No matter what it is, it may be sin, it may be your own defilement, it may be financial debt, it may be the fear of some form of sickness or illness, or maybe it's the fact that you have a sickness or an illness. We want to pray for you. We have some people over off the side that just want to lay hands on you, pray for you, anoint you with oil, pray over you, minister to you.